Thanks for downloading or purchasing this sermon from Christchurch Forward. To find out more, visit forwardchurch.co.uk or join us on Sundays. So the reading is Genesis 2 and it's verses 4 to 17. This is the account of the heavens and the earth when they were created, when the Lord God made the earth and the heavens. Now no shrub had yet appeared on the earth and no plant had yet sprung up. For the Lord God had not sent rain on the earth, and there was no one to work the ground. But streams came up from the earth and watered the whole surface of the ground. Then the Lord God formed a man from the dust of the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and the man became a living being. Now the Lord God had planted a garden in the east of Eden, and there he put the man he had formed. The Lord God made all kinds of trees grow out of the ground, trees that were pleasing to the eye and good for food. In the middle of the garden, there were tree of life and the tree of knowledge of good and evil. A river watering the garden flowed from Eden. From there, it separated into four headwaters. The name of the first is Epishan. It it winds through the entire land of Hivali, and there is gold. The gold of the land is good. Aromatic resin and onyx are also there. The name of the second river is the Gishon. It winds through the entire land of Cush. The name of the third is the Tigris. It runs along the east side of Ashur. And the fourth river is the Euphrates. The Lord God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to work it and take care of it. And the Lord God commanded the man, You are free to eat from any tree in the garden, but you must not eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. For when you eat from it, you will certainly die. This is the word of the Lord. Thank you, Sue. Well, good morning, welcome, and a particular warm welcome if you're new, if you are visiting us for the very first time. As Pete said, don't dash off at the end. Do take a moment just to introduce yourselves. And as a family, let's uh, let's look around. If we see folks we don't know, then let's uh, let's make a particular effort to welcome people. Now, this morning we're thinking about the gift of being human. And uh, one emotion that I have been playing with this morning is, uh, as an England rugby fan, is playing with the gift of being heartbroken. Those of you who didn't see the game, it was a shocker, but um, I've been commiserating this morning with a number of different rugby fans. Uh, my wife, just as I, she's not here actually, I'll just say this to you, this is how, but as a Welsh, anyone who's Welsh will understand this, but just as about, we're just about to switch the game on and she whispered in my ear, she said, you know that I'm sympathetic towards the South Africans, don't you? <laughs> yeah, marriage is still in a good place this morning. Well, let's, uh, let's pause before we look at uh, the wonderful joy. This is a privilege this morning as we look at the gift of what it is to be a man or woman, to be made in the image of God. Let's, let's pause and be still. Father, we thank you so very much for the gift of life. And we pray as we ponder and reflect on your word this morning, on the generosity of your heart and the goodness of who you are, we pray that you would thrill us, we ask in your name. Amen. You know, we are so unique and we don't even know it 
What does it mean to be a human being? That's the question we're pondering this morning. You see, as humans, we have been given these gifts of life, actually, that are greater than any other living being. We have these powerful gifts within us, our energy, our ability to care, our drive, our generosity, our love. We've also been given the ability to choose, to make decisions. And yet, as I was reflecting and pondering on, on this, you know, life's gifts are not always positive. The real gifts of life are often disguised in the cloak of our problems. We all have, don't we, those, those moments that we'd never want to go back to. And yet we can still appreciate them for making us the people that we are. They made us stronger. They made us care more. They increased our emotional intuition. And they made us more grateful for what it is to be human. Now, I mentioned briefly last week creation patterns, or theologians call them creation ordinances. What these are, they're the sort of timeless principles that God baked into creation for the good of humanity to help us flourish, actually, as human beings. And each creation pattern, rest, marriage between a man and a woman, work, procreation, there's two parts to them. There's responsibilities and there's privileges. So, for example, in the case of, of rest that we looked at last week, the privilege of God ordaining rest means that we get to slow down and rest. And the responsibility is that when we gather together like this on a, on a Sunday morning, we remember and worship our God as both creator and savior. This morning, we're going to look specifically at the privileges or the gifts of being made human. It's God's original covenant with humankind. And then next week, we'll focus on, from these very same verses, the responsibility that comes from all these privileges. And the, and the, the, the responsibility is that we're designed to work. So this week, privileges. Next week, responsibilities. Now, I also mentioned last week that there are two creation accounts. So in chapter 1, verse 1 to chapter 2, verse 3, we have a sort of bird's eye view of creation. And here this morning, we have the second creation account. It's a, a more on the ground account. In chapter 2 here, we're, we're right in the thick of the action, and it begins by focusing in on the garden and the creation of Adam and Eve, the, the first people. And verse 4 draws us gently there. This is the account of the heavens and the earth. Now, incidentally, that phrase there, this is the account of, is the way that um, Moses uses to sort of set up the divisions in the book of Genesis, and we'll see that as we go further on through it. And I notice there that the subtle switch, if you like, of order in verse 4. So the first half of the verse says, the heavens and the earth, and then the second half speaks of the earth and the heavens. See, Genesis 1 and 2, they're not opposing accounts. They're not contradictory, but complementary. But Genesis 1 is a perspective from heaven, and we're looking now at the same perspective from earth, which is why we get a switch in God's name. So in chapter 1, it goes from we get God or, or Elohim, which is the, the name of the, the sovereign creator ruling 
over everything. But in chapter 2, the name changes to, to Lord God. You see the capitals there, and that's Yahweh. That's the covenant name of God, showing him also as deeply committed and involved with us as his people. Now, in chapter 2, the, the focus is on what man is to do, what he's for, humanity's role on the earth. But you want you to notice here that the action is all on the Lord God. Notice the verbs relating to God. He formed, verse 7. He breathed, again, verse 7. He planted a garden, verse 8. He made all kinds of trees grow, verse 9. He took the man, verse 15. He put him in the garden, verse 15. And he commanded the man, verse 17. God is active. It is God who determines what it is to be human. So let's have a look then at the privileges of being human. Let's begin with the gift of life. Why is humanity needed? Well, verse 5 is that men and women are needed to work the ground. You'll see there's been no rain yet, but the ground is well irrigated. There are streams coming up from the ground, from the earth. But there's no human to work it and to work the ground. And so the Lord God makes a man and shortly will make a woman. But I want you to notice here that the man is not just made out of thin air, out of nothing. He's made, verse 7, from the dust of the ground. He's made from pre-existing materials. And the man only becomes a living being when God breathes into his nostrils. It's worth pausing before we, we rush on to, to notice our humble beginnings. We come from dirt God formed us from the dust of the earth. And of course, eventually, it's where we go back to. Now, you may recall the story of the little boy who came in some excitement to his mother and said, Mum, is it true that we are made from the dust and that after we die, we go back to the dust? And she said, yes, it is. Well, he said, I looked under my bed this morning and there's someone either coming or going. You know, those very humble beginnings should keep us very humble, should help us recognize that we've come from the earth and we're called to look after it. See, we have an affinity with the planet because in essence we are dust. Yes, impressive dust because of how God has shaped us, but dust nonetheless. And these are humble origins that should keep our pride in place that should stop us ever parading ourselves or over-idolizing ourselves. Yes, we should celebrate human endeavor. That's good. Yes, we might honor those who excel. and That's not wrong. But all of us are dust. We are mortal. We are fragile. It should keep us from ever getting carried away with ourselves. We've been consumed with me and my importance. We're just a room full of dust, actually, after all. But there is glory here as well. The glory is, is he takes this menial element and he breathes into it his own breath. Now we've mentioned before the incredible intimacy with which God made us. He, he left the throne of heaven and he came down to earth and he made us face to face. He got his hands dirty, making man like the potter with the clay. And he carries out the surgery himself when it comes to making a woman. He breathes the breath of life into us. It's the intimacy of the kiss of life. And that close-up involvement didn't finish in the garden. 
You know, there's a beautiful passage which I was reading this week and really enjoying it in the New Testament, which harkens back to this breathing of the breath of God into humanity. You may remember in the Gospel of John, as Jesus is establishing the new creation, he's he's just uh, been resurrected and he's now speaking to his disciples. And in John chapter 20, verse 21, he says these incredible words. Peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, I, I am sending you. And with that, he breathed on them and said, receive my Holy Spirit. See, as the Spirit of God was the instrument in God's first creation, so the Spirit of God is the instrument in the new creation. As God breathed us into living reality in the old creation, so by the breath of God and the regeneration of the Spirit, we are made anew in the new creation. And so we see this enormous privilege for a being that was created from dirt to possess the very breath of God as our source of life. So to be human is to receive the gift of life. It's also to receive the gift of God's kindness. Take a look there at verse 8. Now the Lord God had planted a garden in the east in Eden. It must have been beautiful, wasn't it? I remember visiting the gardens of Versailles a number of years ago and being struck by how beautiful they are. But also, almost certainly not comparable, not a bit comparable, I imagine, to the Garden of Eden. Now, it's worth noting, actually, just to pause a moment there in verses 4 through 6, Moses is recounting for us here the creation, what creation was like before mankind was in the world. See, those words are a reminder of the primordial form of the world before the completion of the six days. We're actually back at the beginning of Genesis chapter 1. It's the description of the world as formless and empty. It was not filled to overflowing until God did it. It's a reminder that this beautiful world which we experience now, which Adam and Eve experienced to an even greater degree, is itself a result of God's goodness, of God's kindness, of God's blessing. And we see that God plants a garden for humanity. It's a pre-cultivated piece of land. Adam and Eve will not begin by having to, to cut the lawns and to kind of work out where you need to plant the different plants and just to sort of set out the garden. They, no, no, it's the garden. It's there. He's given it as a gift to them. And the garden, you see, is a great place to be. There, there's both beauty and bounty. Verse 9, the Lord God made all kinds of trees grow out of the ground, trees that were pleasing to the eye and good for food. They looked great and the fruit tasted great. He provides food for man and he places two trees in the middle of the garden. At the center the tree of life, and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And of course, the very mention of those two trees is a reminder of the tragedy that is to come. But right at the heart of the garden is the tree that symbolizes life. It shows that life in all its fullness is available here in this garden. And then in verses 10 through 14, we see the perfection of man's original environment. The rivers are described, the precious metals are described, so that man's original environment is looked at as extraordinarily rich in resources. There is water, there is gold, there are precious stones there. Everything that humanity needed was there. Derek Kidner, the theologian, commentator, says says this very nicely, I think, that the Lord's provision is a model of parental care. 
Mankind is sheltered but not smothered. On all sides, discoveries and encounters await them. Now, I don't know when this story was first widely spoken amongst the people of God, the Israelites. But you can imagine, can't you, the, the children of Israel as they're in the desert, this, this dry wasteland, meditating on the way that the world was when God first made it. A river which flows in the Garden of Eden, which branches into four rivers, and there's gold everywhere, and there's aromatic resin, or you'll see the footnote there, pearls, and there's onyx, and there are precious stones everywhere you turn. And here the Israelites are, they're in the wasteland. The desert. And they can visibly see the difference between where they were and where they now are. They can see the connection between sin and misery. They know that the difference between now and then is the sin of Adam. They remember that when God originally had created them, he planted a garden. He provided them with food. They were not nomadic. They were stationed in his blessing. They were given water and all the resources that you can imagine. And here they now are, bleeding from Pharaoh. And as the people of Israel meditated on Genesis chapter 2, it gave them reason to look forward with anticipation, I imagine, to the new Garden of Eden, the promised land flowing with milk and honey. And as we stop and pause and meditate this morning on these verses, it gives us reason to look forward to the new creation when all will be well and God's kindness will be released again in all its fullness. So to be human is to receive the gift of life. It's also to receive the gift of kindness. But also to be human is to receive the gift of worship. It's to be a worshiper of God. Verse 15 says the Lord God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to work it and take care of it. Let's just pause a moment here. These, uh, the, the, these, these word pair, these Hebrew words, abad, and Shemar in chapter 2, verse 15, translated as work it and take care of it, occur on at least 15 other occasions in the Old Testament. And in five of those occasions, the word pair are used to describe the actions of the priests in the tabernacle or the temple. So if you're an Israelite and you're reading this account of God's creation, you would understand that Adam is being betrayed here as a priest. Not only is Adam understood to be a gardener, but one who performs acts of praise in doing so. In Isaiah chapter 66, verse 1, we read, this is God speaking, Heaven is my throne, and the earth is my footstool. You see, I think it's quite important, I don't know if I've emphasized this enough as we've been looking at, this, at these verses together in Genesis 1 and 2. Heaven and earth were erected as a house of God. Creation, you see, was designed to serve a, a far more exalted function than just a housing of creatures. The, the cosmic structure was built as a habitation for the creator as well. 
And if think about it, you know, if God is building a house that he plans to indwell, it should not surprise us that the kind of dwelling he builds is a temple. He is, after all, God, and, and by definition is worthy and should expect worship. It's understood that in Genesis 1 that God is constructing a holy sanctuary. He's putting together a material universe that reflects the heavenly temple in which the creator dwells. It's, a, it's an earthly version of the cosmic spiritual temple. And if the garden is in fact a temple, it would follow that Adam and Eve would, were placed in the garden sanctuary as priests, as worshippers acting as intercessors between uh, the, uh, the creation and God, and as God's representatives in mediating blessing to all of this world. Interestingly, when the, the tabernacle and temple are, are subsequently constructed, there's, there's lots of Eden imagery that comes back. Do you remember that? When the temple is built, the, the decoration inside includes trees and flowers. It's decorated like a garden. And at the end of chapter 3 in Genesis, the garden, remember, will be guarded by cherubim. Just as they will guard the Ark of the Covenant within the tabernacle. See, the Israelites understood that they had been created to be worshippers. Human beings are designed to worship, designed to relate to the God who made us. You know, today in our culture, many people would say they're not religious. But everyone, we know this, don't we, lives driven by a desire to satisfy something, to, to pay allegiance to something. Whether it, it's some goal that they've set for themselves, whether it's sort of ambitions for family, maybe it's something to do with pleasure, they want to achieve this or go there. Or maybe it's tied in with work, or, or maybe it's just about owning something. All around us, we, we sense, don't we, that people understand that life is about something, about experiencing something, and they don't want to miss out on it, and we don't either. But instead of the Lord God being the center of our lives, and life orbiting around us as human beings, we get hooked, don't we, on serving lesser gods, hooked on what we own, or how nice our house is, or where it's located, Hooked on how our kids are doing. Hooked on our own screens. Hooked on having sex. Hooked on how people see me, my reputation, my influence. Whether people like me. And those things drive us. It's what we think about. It's what we worry about. Now our friend would tell us if they were honest, it's what we talk about over and over. And yet, we are designed to have our hearts satisfied and centered on something and someone far bigger. See, the trouble is, we read verse 15 and we think, there's nothing that special here. But we are made to relate to God, to be able to speak to God, to know Him. You know, that is a ridiculous privilege. I often think about being a Christian, that this is just the best. You know, the rest of earth's creation exists before God, but is unaware of him, whereas we are. Now, we can easily, we cannot easily, can we, get an audience with, with the most influential people in our world, with prime ministers, presidents, politicians, and quite frankly, even if we managed it, it would almost certainly just be a one-off. And yet, pause and think about this for a moment. You know, when we sit down in an evening and we pray, 
Maybe we pray with our kids at the end of the day. You know, we are able to interact with the God of the heavens and earth. You know, when we gather to worship on a Sunday, we're here to worship the exalted king of every living thing. We're made for God. This is our glory this morning. There's more honor there than, than being a Nobel Prize winner, a cabinet minister or an Olympic medalist or an Oscar nominee. You know, someone in this room might one day attain one of these. Maybe one of the young people. It's unlikely, but it is possible. But more glorious, more significant, more valuable, more stunning about everybody in the room is that we can know God. That we can get to worship Him. That we get to do something for Him. That we get to relate to Him. That is breathtaking. The time is passing. Let me, let me finally mention then one other thing. To be made human is to receive the gift of freedom. Verse 16 we read, And the Lord God commanded the man, You are free to eat from any tree in the garden, but you must not eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. But when you eat from it, you will certainly die. So here we see Adam is given freedom. We see Adam is given permission to eat any fruit in the garden apart from the fruit of one tree. Look at all those trees in your mind's eye. All of them, the vast array of every tree you can possibly imagine is there. Adam, help yourself to any of those. Go for it. Go on, enjoy. Yes, what a wonderful privilege that is. Go and enjoy it all. But there's just the one, just, that one, just the one that, just, stay, just leave that behind. One theologian writes, we often see only the limitation of Genesis chapter 2, verse 17, not the permission, so like the serpent in Genesis chapter 3. The same theologian adds, a clear, authoritative declaration gives permission. It gives freedom. Now, the obvious analogy is what happens at a wedding ceremony. Uh, you know, the minister officiating says, I now pronounce you man and wife. The married couple, they're given a, a context in which the freedom of marriage may thrive. Or the driving examiner who, who says, you've passed your test. You remember that? You're given the freedom to, to drive anywhere within the rules of the road. See, in the modern age, it is hard, isn't it, for us to get our heads around this. We associate authority and commands with a limiting of freedom. Not in releasing us to enjoy and flourish. You see, we can only really understand the situation in the garden as being truly free if we recognize freedom comes from being under God's authority. An authority in which God only wants our best. God sets boundaries ultimately for our own good. Now, what are the two trees really about? Why did God even set up this tension between the fruit of the tree of life and the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil? Well, theologians have written all sorts of books about this, but ultimately, I think it comes down to this, trust. And God is saying here, if I tell you not to do something, will you trust me? Not to do it? It doesn't matter why not. That's not the point. Do you trust me? 
God grants Adam freedom within the context here of his fatherly authority. He will flourish in this freedom only to the extent that he trusts that his God has got the best for him. It just happens that those two trees do come to represent two paths, two destinies. Sadly, we know, don't we, which path Adam and Eve chose and set in motion the story of death. They broke God's law. They sinned and were exiled from the garden. They lost true freedom. So what is, what is the overall point of all of this that we've looked at this morning? And it's this, that God loves us in all our uniqueness. He has gifted us with life, with kindness. He's revealed himself to us as worshippers. And in Christ, we can receive freedom again, true freedom You see, we weren't made to forge our own destiny. We're to live in loyalty to our Creator. This morning, you know that you're God's creation, I'm sure. You you know that you've been given so much that you've been made to worship Him, but like Adam and Eve before you, you've turned away from God. Maybe you've made something else a rival God. Something else that you focus your heart and life on. Or maybe you're consumed with yourself, your problems, you're just self-absorbed. Everything becomes about you. Maybe you've taken gift after gift after gift from God and instead of grateful appreciation, complained at what God has not given you. Maybe you've just exalted yourself, thought that you were more valuable dust than the other dust sitting next to you or the dust that lives across the road from you, or the dust that you pass in the street. Now, the truth is that is true for you. It's just as true for me. And I know it. Sinner saved by grace. And the truth is, collectively, all of us, we have not lived up, have we? We have not lived up to the noble calling. None of us have. Adam failed. Eve failed. And every one of their descendants failed. And you and I this morning, we know we have failed. Not just once in the past, but over and over and over again. But you know, the good news is, is that there is one who broke them old. One who didn't follow. One who didn't eat. When tempted in those 40 days, tempted in the wilderness by Satan... He said, no. See, the Lord Jesus fully trusted his Father. The Lord Jesus, who did not reach out a hand to take from the tree, but when he reached out his hand, it was nailed to the tree. All God's goodness withheld on the cross and all of God's anger raining down on him because of your sin and mine. Also, that we might once again receive the breath of life. Be the grateful recipients of God's kindness, restored to be worshippers, and once again experience true freedom. Freedom from the uncertainty of what it means to be human. Freedom from the pressure of believing I have absolute control over my life. Freedom from those dangerous and hurtful tendencies. Freedom from isolation and freedom from sin and death. And this freedom comes because as believers in Christ this morning, 
We know that we belong to a Savior who loves, protects, nurtures, comforts, supports, and purifies each one of us as his precious children made in the image of God. That is our God. That is our King. That is our Lord Jesus Christ. His greatest desire is that we would know what it is to be human and that we would flourish in that space again. And that is the beauty of the gospel as we talk to our unbelieving friends and our family. The beauty of the gospel is that once again, to be a Christian is to be fully human. And that's a wonderful truth. Amen. Well, let's just pause and be quiet. Reflect God's goodness to us. Father, we thank you for your huge generosity. But this morning we want to pause and we thank you for the ultimate image bearer. We thank you for the Lord Jesus Christ. We thank you for his faithfulness. That where Adam and Eve failed and where we failed, that he succeeded. We thank you that we can pause and worship him this morning. And so we stop and we do so. In your name, amen.